And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. What are we reading today, Maggie? We are reading Parable of the Sour by Octavia E. Butler. My obsession. Yes. Okay, so Maggie has uh, chosen both of our Octavia Butler series thus far. And I opened this book up, and the first page, it's... 2024 and it's talking about how god has changed and the world essentially in this book is dying because of climate change and i don't know why maggie does this to me because <laughs> every time we open an octavia butler book it's just like we're living we're living in the dystopian fantasy that she has uh created yeah I mean, I don't really think that this is my fault that she's uh was able to predict the future, but you know. Listen, Kindred, does Kindred predict the future? No? Okay. Kindred is about uh, a woman who travel who moves into a new apartment and that apartment allows her to travel back in time and space, and she ends up in slave era Maryland, which was scary because she's obviously a black woman. And yeah. So that one was more of a of a of a reflection on history. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This book. Before we get into it, can I just say there's another part that's like eerily similar. They have a guy running for president at one point called President Donner. He sounds a lot like Donald Trump. Oh yeah. And it just gets worse in book two. It just gets worse <laughs> in book two. Yeah. Okay, so we are living in the dystopian times. Do you want to give a summary for this book, Maggie? I do not because I haven't read it in a while. (laughs) Okay, I will give a summary for this book. So this book follows the life of a girl named Lauren or Olamina is her proper name that really only strangers and people who are really, really close to her use. And we start off when she's like, kind of a preteen and go up until she's 18 throughout this book. And it's about her creating her own sort of religion. It's also about her being a child of the 2020s and living in a world that is no longer at all stable. She lives in a gated community for the majority of, well, for about half the book, she lives in a gated community. And there are these big walls to keep other people out. And the community is all about surviving because everything's super expensive, there are no jobs, and there just aren't any resources anymore. So like people don't drive places because we can't keep having things like oil cars. And there's a lot of homeless and destitute people outside of the gated community. So Lauren is here in this in this gated community, and she recognizes that the world is is fucked up. And all of the grownups are just trying to survive and also hoping to go back to a time where they had more security. And she thinks that this is pointless. Her father's a pastor and he is very religious and she was raised in a religious household. So she decides that what is being preached to her doesn't make enough sense. So she starts creating her own religion uh, in hopes of finding something more truthful and also finding a doctrine that will allow humanity to survive. And what she comes up with is called Earthseed. And Earthseed's main premise is that God is change. God isn't a deity. God just is change because change is inevitable. And change can be shaped. And in order for people to survive, they have to reach their destiny, which is an actual heaven and is in the stars. Like people need to leave earth. All living things need to leave earth and head off to the stars and find heaven there. And so she she's just there in her gated community and the gated community ends up getting burned down. And then she finds some friends as she tries to find like a more stable place 
for her to live in the meantime. Yeah, her whole thing is essentially trying to get all of humanity to a new planet. And she's also a hyper empath, which is a huge part of this book, because when she sees other people experience pain, or even pretend like they're experiencing pain, she feels it, like literally, which is a weird disease based off the fact that her mother took a drug. And so like, all offspring of people who have taken this drug essentially become a hyper empath. So it's like really stigmatized to be a hyper empath. And so it's also like about her struggle with that and being sort of really misunderstood by everyone around her because of that. It's a really good book. I like this book a lot more than I liked the second book. Really? Interesting. (laughs) I've just started the second book, so I don't have any feelings on that yet. Yeah, the hyper empathy thing. Let's start with that because that's kind of talked about right at the beginning. And it, it has some elements of realistic things, I think, in like, it's a psychological disorder, but she feels the pain and she can start bleeding. And that kind of reminds me a little bit of stigmata. What did you think about hyper empathy? Because this book, this first book doesn't focus as much as I thought it would on the idea of like, being empathetic in general. Yeah, it's something that she really struggles with because it, you know, it's a danger to her, right? Like she can get really, really hurt and she does get really, really hurt when she sees other people get hurt. So like, for example, if she sees somebody die, like she doesn't die herself, but she does black out from the pain. Like she, she ain't there anymore, so to speak. So like, I thought that was really interesting as a concept because it almost it doesn't paint empathy in a bad light, right? But like, it does talk about the fact that like, boundaries are important. And like, you can't hold on to other people's pain in that sense, which I thought was really interesting. Um, I also think that it's interesting because her religion, you're right, like really, the religion she write, she creates really doesn't focus on empathy very much. It doesn't like, she, she has a lot of the basic like, tenets of most religions right like do unto others as you wish to be done unto yourself like she's not sitting out there being like a proponent of doing evil to people by any means but like it really is just about the fact that like you have to shape the world that you want to see and empathy is like a part of that but it's not the way forward for her I think the idea of empathy is interesting because emotional intelligence is so associated with women and how we're social and how people who are socialized to to be women are sort of expected to act and things to do. And so I thought it was a really clever way to talk about emotional labor and what we expect out of women in that sense, while also painting it as being that level of emotional intelligence, so to speak, like understanding pain sharing is harmful to the person who isn't experiencing it. And so it was... I don't know. It was just a really clever way, I think, to talk about all of those disparate things in sort of one concept. Yeah, I agree. It is interesting because Lauren, our main character, even though she is a painter, she has learned to develop serious boundaries. Like she knows not to look at people in pain. And she's in a society where it is really every man for themselves. So she walks this really hard line between being empathetic and taking people in and also being like the most shrewd person in her her group of people because she's had to learn to put up these boundaries. And we do eventually meet other hyper empaths and one of them is a man. And Lauren talks at one point about kind of what a dick he is because he is a serious dick and he he's completely shut off from people he doesn't want to help the group at all all he cares about is survival for him and his daughter and so she kind of implies that that could potentially be because he is a man and the world is even more dangerous for him with hyper empathy but that being said lauren even though she experiences hyper empathy is not your typical like feminine persona A lot of the other female characters that we see, even though Lauren has the ability to be feminine and has the ability to caretake. uh, Right. So the other women in the group are more feminine than Lauren herself is, even though Lauren has the desire to want to have children and seems to have a soft spot for children and is like a caretaker in a lot of ways. 
she once she's a grown-up never becomes like the emotional labor person for the most part but she kind of is at the same time because she is very clearly the leader and she takes up those leadership roles and that in and of itself requires a lot of emotional labor and deciding who to trust and how to interact with other people yeah it's really interesting because in many ways she's not like your typical feminine character but the aspects of her that I think do sort of align with traditional like feminine qualities are actually a lot of what makes her a really good leader. Like she's really good at reading the group and she's very persuasive. And she's also really good at like knowing when to back down, not in the sense of like derailing herself, but she's really good at knowing when she's not going to get through to someone. So like the best thing to do is back off, wait a little while and like take a different tack. Which is especially interesting because she's the youngest person of their group, like, the entire time. But she's very much in charge. And she's been that way ever since she was a child. So, like, when Harmony was talking about in the summary the fact that she doesn't agree with everything that she's being taught, a lot of it is because the adults are just, like, hoping and praying that the world is going to go back to normal, essentially. Normal, quote-unquote. And because of that, they're not teaching like survival skills to the people that live within the skated community. Uh, And Lauren really disagrees with that. And she thinks that everyone needs to be able to know how to like survive and self-sustain. She thinks that that's the future. So she, and she's like maybe 12 or 13 when this happens, like she's young. So she steals one of her dad's guidebooks essentially. And so she brings it to one of her friends and ends up like really scaring that friend and gets in a lot of trouble because of all of this, because she went about it wrong. Her leadership skills and her emotional intelligence really develop a lot throughout the entire book, partially because of this experience she has where she like realizes that if this is what she wants, she has to package it differently. Yeah. She has to go about it in a much different way because not because people don't agree with her off the bat like they just want life to be normal and all the other kids around her right they listen to what their parents say and lauren is the only one who's out there like questioning the doctrine so to speak for the most part not to go too far away from the text but as we're i mean this is an important read for right now we are in 2020 protests are still going on every day who knows what will happen in november like it's a still lot July of us- we're, when, when we're recording this for, for yeah. those of you who are interested. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. I feel like big things will happen back by then. But like, yeah, who knows what will happen in November? And I feel like a lot of us have, especially since Corona has happened, wanted or or been thinking about how unsustainable our current society is and how close we are to collapse. Maggie and I live in the United States. We have it shoved down our throat since we were like two that we are the greatest nation in the world and the most powerful because we have the biggest military. But we are a third world country. And like, this is not far off. (laughs) Um, Wait, that's not the that's not the right phrase to use. Sorry, what? time out there. Uh, first and third world are not the phrases we use anymore in global development. It's a scale on of one to four um, based on a whole whole ranking of factors. So instead, we talk about it on a scale now talking about more developed and less developed because there's just too many uh, factors okay. to be like, you know, this place is just lesser and always, so to speak. Just throwing it out there. No, that's of, good. I think part I'll of my mysterious that. job. Yeah. <laughs> I will keep that because uh, I think a lot of people still use that term. So that's good to know. Yeah, we're not a developed, we're not a very well developed country. And we are at the brink of collapse. And so this idea of having newness was just like very prevalent to me while reading this, especially because even people who think the same way that I do and who are calling for revolution are also, and even myself, to a certain extent, like, we're also yearning for normalcy. And the fact is, we can't go back to normal. We shouldn't go back to normal. Yeah, I don't know. What did you think about that? I thought did you was... see this as a manifesto? A little bit, yeah. Because, like, that part really, that was actually one of the things that really drew me into this book. And, and one of the things where I was like, oh, yeah, like while I was reading it a couple months ago, I was like, oh, yeah, we should, like, definitely read this for the podcast. 
Um, because she's so, she just sees things so clearly, right? And she's discounted because she's so young, which reminds me a lot of what's happening with like the majority of Gen Z right now who see things very, very clearly and are being discounted because they're so young. Um, Because like the oldest Gen Zers right now are like, they're Ten- almost our age. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm like barely a millennial uh, by most people's counts. I make it by like two months. So like they're my age, 24. Um, and then, you know, the youngest are, they haven't cut off yet. So like they're still kids, right? And I see a lot of parallels there. I also see a lot of parallels in the sense of like the move for self-sustainability, which in some ways this community does right like they're very where she lives is very insular they rely on themselves they can't rely on um traditional methods of protection like police the police for example because the police are corrupt both in the book and in the real world and so like in some ways they're really moving towards self-sustainability and lauren's whole point is just essentially being like that's not enough so i saw parallels there between it just very much feels like the moment in time that we're in now where it's like everyone desires things to, I think, feel safe and secure. And there's a large portion of people in this country who are willing to sacrifice the safety and security of others so that they can have that feeling. And that's really what's happening in, in a lot of this book. Something interesting that happens is that even while Lauren is able to like advocate for all of this change and stuff, one thing she doesn't see particularly clearly is the level of privilege she has to live within this gated community. She very much like she's aware of all of the destitution that happens outside the walls, but she never really has a chance to see it because staying within the gated community is like obviously safe and much safer and they rarely go out except to for gun practice. But she, they they still live within really extreme poverty within their community, but compared to what's happening outside of it, like, it's not until that community is taken away from her that she realizes what the rest of the world is sort of dealing with uh, and the level of privilege she had to be able to grow up in a place that was, like, safe and sheltered. Um, so that was compelling for me because it was... It, it showed her own hypocrisy, right? Like, um, because there are moments where after they leave, right? Like, she does want things to go back to normal. And she has to, like, really fight against that in herself and be like, no, I miss my family. I miss my brothers. I miss feeling safe. But, like, moving forward to build a new community is the only way to go. And it has to be a more inclusive community, but, like, she ends up having that same struggle that she's fighting against in everyone around her, ultimately. Yeah. Yeah, there were a few things that you said that I want to touch on. So, like in the real world, everyone's looking for what this book calls superficial comforts. On page 56, while Lauren is talking to her friend and trying to get her friend, while, while Lauren's a child and trying to get her friend to see that the world is fucked, essentially. She says, She was too bright to take anything but the most superficial comfort from her denial, but even superficial comfort is better than none, I guess. So if we're going to apply this to the real world, we can easily do that. I mean, just with, like, coronavirus alone, we can do it because people want others to go out there and work so that they can have their superficial comforts. But the thing is, just like in this book, they're still putting themselves at risk when they take those superficial comforts. And the sicker we as a society get, the more likely they themselves are going to become sick. These superficial comforts in the book don't hold. And even Lauren is surprised when her society breaks. Mm -hmm. Another quote right about there is on page 57 that I thought was important. Okay, so they're talking about how things have to change and how once upon a time in Europe or something. Oh, in Europe, there was the, the medieval plague and things changed after that. So Lauren says... 
things are changing now too. Our adults haven't been wiped out by a plague, so they're still anchored in the past, waiting for the good old days to come back. But things have changed a lot, and they'll change more. Things are always changing. This is just one of the big steps instead of the little step-by-step changes that are easier to take. People have changed the climate of the world. Now they're waiting for the old days to come back. And I just wanted to bring that up, too, because we're talking about the real world, and this is literally what is happening right now, except we have a plague, and we still don't want to change. (laughs) Yeah, and then another thing you brought up was guns, and that was really interesting to me, because throughout this book, guns are very, very necessary. Guns are very, very necessary, and being of this world, where living in the United States today, where gun violence is so prevalent... And where, you know, I, I am very, very left leaning. So the people I tend to interact with are generally anti-gun. But I think since we've seen the instability of society, of our society really start to crack or the stability of our society really start to crack, a lot of people have more interest in guns. And I know like I personally have had more interest in guns. My mother went out and bought a gun and we can see actual, like lots of people are going out and buying guns right now. Like this is a statistical thing that is happening. It is not just anecdotal. And I just thought it was interesting how necessary they were in this book, especially for a hyper empath who dies when she she kills people, who gets hurt when she hurts people. And I also thought it was interesting because our main character is black. And this was written in the 80s. And the only the only situation where I know like guns were used by black people, I'm sure there are more, but like the Black Panthers come to mind. And the Black Panthers were a mostly peaceful organization who were there to protect their neighborhoods. So I I wanted to know what your thoughts are on this, because I know that you do a lot of work with anti-gun violence. Yeah, I'm from Sandy Hook, Connecticut, From for those of you who don't know. I obviously don't live there now, but that's where I grew up, and I was in high school when that school shooting happened. So, like, anti-gun violence is something that I'm, like, really passionate about because of that. Also, this book was written in the 90s, just so you know. Oh, uh, um, really? It came out in 93. Thank you. You're welcome. And not that it's that big of a deal, but just to put it out there. I thought the use of guns in this book was really interesting, especially with the hyper empath thing, because, you know, as Harmony and I, this has come up a lot in the past couple of episodes, right? But like every piece of harm Lauren does to another human, she feels equally up until death, right? Like, because she doesn't die as we've discussed. So like, it really talks about the fact that like, when you cause harm to another, you also cause harm to yourself and like the consequences of doing violent things while obviously I think in most situations much greater for the victim and where you know empathy and resources should be going to if we don't talk about and address the circumstances that led the perpetrator to commit that act of violence then we're not addressing the systemic issue underneath it um that like allows for violence to be so prevalent in our society, if that makes sense. So I think that the idea of a hyper empath using a gun is really compelling, uh, like a compelling way to think about and talk about that aspect of things. But then also, this book shows so clearly the empathy deficit to me, which is a real thing that the whole world is going through right now, where because of a whole host of things, uh, it is harder to be empathetic to people who have experience, you know, to people. It's even hard to be sympathetic. Those terms are used interchangeably, but they are different. And because there's like this whole lack of empathy in this book, because it's so every man for themselves, right? Like violence becomes necessary for personal protection, right? Like they're not able to do it. It's really difficult for Lauren to do any work to build this community throughout this entire time because everyone is so emotionally selfish and like they have to be right because everyone else is so emotionally selfish that like the levels of violence are really high and if you put yourself out there like the chances that you're gonna get hurt are really really high the chances that you could die are really really high so like there's this really interesting component as Lauren's trying to build this community of like building community and extending emotion 
like emotions to people outside of your core group is like a really risky and dangerous thing to do. And so like, you have to protect yourself as you can, as you do anything in this world. Yeah. So do you see guns, I guess then like, and their necessity in the book as an extension of that, you have to be selfish because everyone else is being selfish. Cause I feel like that's the main argument for people who are gun owners when you talk to them yeah and I think that that's a really sticky point here because I think that in the book like that's part of what the argument is right like because there is no law essentially right like the government is pretty much a total sham you can't rely on protection from traditional sources like not even firefighters right like we're sitting here very much in the midst of protests um about like police brutality and stuff, but this book takes it one step further and talks about the fact that like everyone is corruptible, right? Like I see a lot of people talking about the fact currently, right? Like you don't see protests going on against EMTs and like firefighters because they go out there and they do their job and they don't abuse their power. But like in this book, they do. I think that my position personally on guns has changed a lot over the past eight years, as I imagine most people's, you know, have over life. And I think that like, I don't know, my personal sort of stance on anti-gun violence is really pushing for better, like gun control and gun safety laws, rather than saying that like, no one should own a gun. And also making sure that like, people who are at the highest risk of violence have like a way to defend themselves, you know? So like, I just I, I don't know, it's hard. It's hard because I can see the argument where it's like, people are selfish and they're going to try and hurt you. And like, you need to have a way to do your, to defend yourself. Right. Like I just personally don't think you need an AK-15 to do that. <laughs> I agree. I agree. So like, I think that that's potentially the argument the book is making a little bit at least, or at least that's like my interpretation of it currently, because like, that's the thing with all post-apocalyptic books really. Right. Is like, it's every man for themselves because there's no systems in place to protect you, which means that everyone who isn't with you is against you. So like, of course, in situations where everyone feels that way, violence is going to be really high, you know, like as much as I want to believe that every person on the planet is a good person, that's just like inherently untrue. <laughs> yeah. I think everyone could be maybe, but I think that we would need a lot of work to get there to provide people with ways to reduce harm. Yeah, I don't know. It was just interesting to me because, like, I once had a boyfriend who tried to make me touch his gun, which sounds very sexual, um, but it wasn't. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I don't want to touch anything that could kill another human being. And now I feel as though we are living in a post-apocalyptic world. And it's like, well, we can't really have a revolution unless we have guns but also it's just scary to think about death in that way yeah so I don't know I was asking because I myself have a lot of conflicting feelings about the necessity for devices that can so effectively kill but also uh, the the people the bad people have them so like I just I don't know <laughs> yeah no like that's that's the hard thing right is that like we're at a place where like the bad people have them and some of the good people have them. And it's just like chaos all over the place. I think that if there was more effective action taken in the United States after Columbine or Virginia tech or hell, even after Sandy hook eight years ago, like we might be in a different, different. It'd, it'd be a much different climate, right? Like, um, and maybe the answer would be something more akin to like, banning or repossessing guns of like a certain caliber or whatever but like it's gotten to such an insidious point currently that those measures are just never going to be passed I don't know maybe I'm being pessimistic but like <laughs> uh, especially because this is like a really personal issue for me but like I just feel so despairing of the idea that like that's the way forward right now just simply because of the amount of pushback that like and violence, I think, that probably would happen as a result of something like that. And, like, yeah, I don't know. Guns are, like, weirdly necessary in this society, both in the book and sometimes in real life. So, like, it's 
it was an interesting aspect of the story for me. Sorry, I kind of pulled this really far away from the text there. <laughs> no, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, we didn't take very comprehensive notes, so we're going to talk about it far away from the text. But I think that's okay, because this book is so very relevant to our current lives, and I think it needs to be talked about. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, we also kind of touched a little bit about this. The idea of in-groups and out-groups really, really struck me throughout this novel because we start we start in a physical in-group where people are like boarded up, like they don't allow outsiders in and all outsiders are seen as dangerous. And that theme just kind of continues even as Lauren hits the road and is surrounded by outsiders and even decides to like adopt some of them. There is this very clear in-group, out-group mentality that struck me as a human because even though I look and am currently in an in-group like I never growing up because of my specific circumstance I always felt like an outsider so it's like a very weird dichotomy to to be a part of but on page 96 another thing that really personally struck me as somebody who has had a stepmother let's see Lauren's stepmother Corey kind of stops loving Lauren or she doesn't stop loving it but she says something that makes Lauren question whether or not she actually loves her I mean we were always Corey and Lauren she never asked me to call her mother and I never thought to do it I always knew she was my stepmother but still I always loved her it mystified me that Keith was her favorite but it didn't make me love her any less I was her kid, but not her kid. Not quite. Not really. But I always thought she loved me. Dad shooed us all off to the bed. He quieted Corey and took her back to their room. A few minutes ago, he came to see me. She didn't mean it, he says. She loves you as though you were her daughter, Lauren. I just looked at him. She wants you to know she's sorry. I nodded, and after a few more assurances, he went. Is she sorry? I don't think so. Did she mean it? She did. Oh, yes, she meant it. Shit. I think it's also worth noting that the event that precipitates all of this is that her brother, Keith, who's a piece of shit, by the way, really not a good dude and also Corey's favorite, has gone missing. He ran away. Yeah, I want to talk about Keith in a little bit, too, because he's a confounding character. But yeah, that event really made me think about the out-group, in-group thing that exists within the society but also it like exists within her own family structure and she says shit at the end because it's not just Corey doesn't love me it's like it's an impediment to her survival if something happens to her is Corey going to take the bullet we don't ever really get to find out um but it's as somebody that has experienced that before, like that had grown up with a stepmother for 15 years of her life and then like got cut off from her. It was just really interesting that that idea that like blood is stronger and that you never really have that security, even inside of an in-group, there is always the possibility of betrayal. Yeah. And it gets really tested later because Keith runs away and then, Lauren's father goes missing and is eventually presumed dead. They never find him. And so, like, in that sense, her blood, her protector, as she sees it, like, that danger that Harmony's talking about becomes very real. Because it is kind of questionable whether Corey's going to continue taking her and uh, taking care of her and everything. Because, like, Lauren's still a kid at this point. And Corey does, but, like, things are never the same between the two of them, you know? And so, like, that her her sense of safety is totally torn away after all of this kind of happens. Yeah. I think that like there aren't very many instances in which blood itself is like a boundary. There are some like we have sisters that came from an abusive father, so they were not safe in a situation, but for the most part a lot of the characters tend to be very committed to people they are blood related to. Um, and there are other few exceptions. Why are you smiling like that? Because it just changes so much in Parable of the Talents and I can just like see how interesting that conversation's gonna be. Continue. <laughs> I just think I just think it's interesting because like there's there's a little girl that dies towards the beginning of this book because her family's negligent, essentially, but the mom goes crazy after that. So it's like not necessarily that the, the family 
is betraying the child, although they kind of are. It's just kind of like they don't have the support themselves to really give this child the love it needs. Yeah, there's no resources, both emotionally or just like generally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So and and towards the end of the book, we meet a few characters like the the man with hyper empathy that I mentioned before. And also there's a woman with hyper empathy and they are very, very committed to their children and like would do anything, would die for them. So I just thought that was like, it seems like blood seems to be the ultimate in group within this novel. See, I kind of disagree with that because I think that's where Lauren starts. And I think that in the society, the gated community she lives in, that's for sure true. But like, ultimately, this is a novel about creating new community and found family and like building a a religion around all of that. So like, I do think that the novel pushes back against that, right? Like, in the end, what her family ends up being is Harry and Sahara. Yeah. And Bancole, like, those people are the people that Lauren commits to, like, she's, they're her chosen family, and she would do anything for them. So like, the idea that blood is the strongest, I think is where the novel starts I just don't think it's where it ends because uh, although part of this is all, all also because Lauren gets separated from her entire family when the community is broken into and burned down Laura Corey tries to take all of the kids right like and mm-hmm. save them including Lauren but Lauren gets separated and she never finds her way back to them so like chosen family becomes more important because she's separated But, like, I think that's probably where it would have gone anyways, just because, like, she's building a new community and a new religion. Uh, And to do that, you sort of have to sever, like, those blood ties to a certain extent. Um, Especially because the reason that she keeps Earthsea quiet for so long is because she knows it'll hurt her father. Mm -hmm. um, Who is, you know, a pastor. He preaches, you know, pretty traditional Christian stuff. Um, So, like, she evolves that way throughout the book yeah yeah and to be fair too like the people that you mentioned for the chosen family Bankol, harry zahara there are other people that come in and become the chosen family um, the gilchrist yeah that have other like that are excluded from this role but like they all all those core four course yeah all those core four they, all of their families died as well like they are also separated yeah, they all come come together because they have to. Yeah, they have no blood ties with anyone in the world. Yeah, and even the people who do have blood family that end up joining, for it's harder for them to integrate into their group because they're already a little family unit, right? Like, they're already a little thing. So it, it takes a lot longer for them to, to integrate into the group that Lauren has, which isn't an Earthseed group yet. Uh, she talks about Earthseed a lot to them by the end of the novel, and she's, like, trying to convince them, but really it's just a survival group. Like, they're living rough on the road, constantly moving, with an end goal eventually of getting to Bank Hole's property up in Humboldt County. Oh my god! Let's talk about Humboldt County! Let's talk about Humboldt County! Guys, that's where I grew up! I spent eight years of my life in Humboldt County. It is a beautiful place. It is also a really horrifying place. And it's, it's just so great to see representation in this beautiful book. And it acknowledges the, the horrifying a little bit. It's like, yes, there are redwood trees. So a lot of crime happens there. And by crime, they mean like scary pot growing. Like you didn't know pot growing could be scary, but it's scary. Um, that's all. That's all I wanted to say. There's a lot of origin story for Maggie and Harmony coming out in this episode. <laughs> That was the other reason that I knew I I was like, Harmony has to read this because she's going (laughs) to flip um, when she sees that that's the end goal. But yeah, like it really is. They're just trying to survive from the day to day because that half of the novel is way more focused on on sort of like the dystopian survival factor. Yeah. Which I think is also interesting, right? Because like this this novel really reminds me of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I ain't a psychiatrist or a sociologist so like don't come at me if that's (laughs) if that's not really what people talk about anymore but like it really does remind me of that because like Lauren for all her bitching and moaning about the gated community right like really doesn't see the privilege she has and that all of her basic needs are being taken care of 
And so she has the time and the mental energy and resources to think about like writing an entire new religion, you know? And then once that's taken away from her, Earthseed is really what keeps her going and she thinks about it a lot, but like she doesn't have the same level of resources to like indulge in thinking about that, which I think is also just such like a, such a metaphor for how capitalism does us all, right? Like if we all didn't have to sit here and like grind and work and worry so much just about like basic survival, there probably would be more religions. There'd be more art in the world, right? Like there'd just be more. We would have colonized Mars. Mars would be colonized by now. Yeah, like there just there'd be more outlets and stuff, you know. Like so that that really resonated with me as well. Talking about that kind of like time privilege that is taken away when you're just worried like day to day how you're even going to survive, right? Like I think for me the Earth Seed thing once she gets onto the road. I mean, I did notice themes of capitalism throughout here, but differently. And I get I get the Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I agree with that as well. But like the theme to me is that once she gets out on the road, it's time to finally enact Earthseed. Like before she's just thinking about it, but now she is she's using it. She doesn't think about it a lot, but like she uses it to teach other people in the group how to read and write. And whether or not they consciously know of it, it is like binding them all together. And when they finally get to Humboldt County, they call their little commune anchor uh, acorn and it's, it's an earth seed commune. Like yeah. Lauren has made it. So, and other people end up being amendable to this, like the ideas, which is what her goal is. Her She talks a lot about like having something simple enough to like have people remember it and for it to like get stuck in their brains without them meaning to get stuck in their brains for sure and like that definitely i think is the bigger point of like like plot device like why she does go out on the road and stuff why she would have always ended up out uh, out on the road even if the gated community like wasn't destroyed because you're right like it is about enacting earthseed and stuff and i think something interesting that again we'll dive into way more next episode because it parable of the talents really sort of breaks this apart is that like Lauren's not above using some kind of, sh- kind of like shady and morally gray means to yeah. spread Earthseed. Like if you, if outside of this context, if you found out that somebody was like using only their religious texts to teach others how to read and write, you'd be like, excuse me, what? Because like, that's just not cool anymore. Like you don't do that to people because it doesn't, it just like so sways them and like ingrains something in them that they have no choice about. Mm-hmm. But, like, Lauren's chill with it. And to a certain extent, on the one hand, like, they really don't have a lot of other resources to teach other people how to read and write. But on the other hand, like, she's aware of the fact that, like, it's going to ingrain Earthseed in people. And she's cool with that, you know? (laughs) Yeah. There are a lot of weird themes like that throughout this book. With the fact that Lauren is kind of like a Jesus figure. Not that she can do miracles, because Earthseed doesn't believe in miracles. But, like... You know, when Christianity came about, like, Jesus was radical because he was talking about a new way for society to work. And I was thinking a lot about this because occasionally when I'm worried about the world, I'll call up my friend Kevin. You've heard him before. He's Kevin the Colonizer. And (laughs) I know. I'll, like, be like, I don't know what to do about the world. I know that you're on the internet. What on the internet will allow me to, like figure out what to do about the world. And the idea that we keep coming back to and talking through is like, you need to connect yourself with organizers, but also you need to start thinking about the world that you want to see because when the revolution does come, shit's going to be in chaos and there are going to be like, there's going to be a space to fill. Like people need to, which sounds really awful, but at the same time, like people, that's when you get to push your ideologies and your beliefs. Which is also, it's also true of the other side, right? Like, yeah, that space to fill isn't, it's not guaranteed that like, it's going to be filled by what you want, unless you're ready to mobilize. Yes. And that's what Lauren, that that's what she's doing. It's just kind of scary and like icky to think about. But at the same time, she genuinely believes in what she's preaching. So yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I think I think it's interesting that you liken her to a Jesus life figure, because like I got that too. But also, you know, a much more probably 
going to say something bold for all my Christian listeners, but like probably similarly to how Jesus was in real life. She's a human. She's a morally gray person. She doesn't always do the right thing. She struggles to figure out what the right thing is. Like she's not a holy figure in the same, and like in the same way of traditional religions, right? Like she, and she doesn't place herself really as anything other than a teacher to just be like, this is what I believe and I think that you should believe it too. And that's almost a key tenet of Earthseed is that like anyone, re- she like she so deeply believes that like God is change and that you have to shape change that she's like, I mean, anyone could have come up with this. I just happened to write it down, right? Like not in the sense that she's some holy messenger, but just in the sense that like she deeply believes that like this is the way the world is, that like we all need to bow down to change. Yeah, that's interesting. And that also kind of reminds me a little bit of like, of Jesus in a way, and I'm not sure how, but yeah, whenever the other characters are like, what the fuck are you doing? You're just like sitting in your, sitting there and, and writing down like, you're, you're making up a religion. She's like, no, I'm not making anything up. I just saw the truth. And that, that phrasing, the way she talks about it reminded me of the way we see some Christian phrasing. Like, I just, am the son of God. Like this just is the truth. But it's also scary because we can't prove anything like that. I mean, I guess we could prove that that change exists and we'll we'll never stop, which is why which is why uh Lauren goes for it. But like there sometimes is a space for multiple truths when we're talking about ideologies and her belief system doesn't allow for that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I almost feel this is the part of the aspect of the book that I feel like least qualified to talk about because I've been raised as an atheist my whole life. So like my knowledge of Christianity is way more limited than the average Americans. I've stepped foot in a church like three times in my life and it was all for funerals. So like, That's what I'm working with here on the, like, Christian knowledge level. Like, I'm so dumb that I didn't even realize that the parable of the sour was, like, a real Bible parable. And they even talk about it in the book. I just, like, didn't put it two and two together. So, like, I feel feel sort of unqualified to talk about, like, those parallels, which I think is a shame to a certain extent because, like, it is obviously a big part of the book. But, like, all of this to say I don't have much more intelligent things to say about what you just said other than, like, I think you're probably right. (laughs) I mean, at the back of my copy, Butler is interviewed talking about Earthseed, and she she explicitly essentially says, I was looking for a religion that, like, couldn't be disproven, and that was, like, unequivocally true. And she also took influence not just from Christianity, but like from all of the great religions in the world. Not like not like great, but like all the big ones. Yeah, all the, the five big- the five big ones, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, do we want to talk about the parable of the sour? Because I found that really interesting. And I am also not a Christian expert, but um I was kind of raised to view mythology and stories um as a thing. <laughs> You have you have a higher base level of knowledge than I do, for sure. So yeah, we can talk about the parable of the sour. Yeah, so the whole idea of the parable of the sour... Actually, I have a, the excerpt from the Bible, from a Bible at least here. Uh, do you want to read it or do you want me to? <laughs> you can read it. All right. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still, other seed fell on the good soil, where it produced a crop, a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. 
Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And then is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this, people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. So there's like some concerning parts of that. <laughs> and there are also some parallels to the next parallel, the next parable that the, uh, the next book is named after, Parable of the Talents, in terms of ideology. But the general thing is that like, and this, I don't have the page number, but this is explicitly talked about in the book to a certain extent where Lauren talks about why her father, the minister, likes to talk in parables. Parables are stories, and therefore they're like more easy to penetrate people, and it gives them the truth without explicitly giving them the truth is kind of what I got from that. I don't know if I'm reading that right, but that's kind of what I got. No, that's what I got too. And also, I think similarly to the way that Lauren teaches people Earthseed by using it to teach them to read and write, right? Like, you're learning something without... I don't know how to say this without making it sound insidious because that's not really what I mean. But like you're you're being taught something through your what you're what you're actually being taught is different than what you're being told, you know. And there's also an idea of like seeing the truth. Like these other people aren't able to see the truth. So this isn't like people making things up. These parables aren't made up. They're just like ways of delivering the truth that the apostles are lucky enough to see. I think something that's really interesting about this and about this entire like parallel also is the idea that like people can't see it because their hearts are too calloused. Right. So like that draws totally to Lauren in the sense that like her heart is the opposite of callous. It's so open that she feels other people's pain. Right. So like to see the truth in both of these cases, you have to be an open and empathetic person. Right. Like you have to have your heart open. Yeah. And you have to have, your heart open to faith and her faith is earth seed. Yeah. I don't know how I feel about that. Maybe I'll figure out more when I read the next book because I'm at the beginning and I can already see inklings of this being challenged. And Maggie's reactions seem to tell me that there's going to be a lot more challenging. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's something about the to both of these books that I think is really interesting though. And that I thought about a lot while reading both of them is that initially Butler intended this to be a four book series and then essentially didn't like the way that the story was going. She felt like she wasn't saying what she actually wanted to say. So she ended up just ending it with Parable of the Talents. Um, so like, I always, as, as we're having this conversation, I, I can't help but sit here and think and be like, but what did she actually want to say then, right? Like if these messages that we're getting isn't what she actually wanted to say, then what the fuck was she actually trying to say, right? Like, and she did it consciously. The parable of the talents has like an ending, right? Like it, you, you understand what happens through the, through the whole story. But yeah, I just, I just keep thinking about that like this entire time. Oh, like oh what's boy. Ooh, That's gonna but, fuck me up. <laughs> yeah, welcome. I've been fucked up about this for ages. How am I supposed to make it a manifesto if I don't know that she meant to say what she wanted to say? I think the first book she probably is saying what she wants to say, right? Because she ultimately went went on to write the second. But like, I don't know. It just proves what a complicated subject this is. Like, because a lot of it, like some some of what is at the core here is like what makes a good person a good person what makes a good religion a good religion like really just like core needy moral stuff that like no one has the answer to you know because we're all trying to figure it out for ourselves every day yeah i feel like that's a good place to end but i really want to talk about keith (laughs) yeah we should talk about keith for a sec because keith is a difficult character both in his actions but also like he's really difficult to understand in many ways he's just the antithesis of lauren yeah he is but i don't okay so you were talking about before about how he's like a bad person and this is maybe the harmony spin 
but like I don't believe in bad people. I think we've talked about that before. <laughs> he does he does terrible actions though. He takes awful actions. He does. But at the same time, there's this weird okay, so his father beats him before he runs away, and he does like he does kind of show like sociopathic tendencies. Like he makes Lauren bleed when she's young, um, and is kind of a general dick. And when he goes out into the real world, seems to be caught up in something scary. But it's also like a part of this hyper masculinity and drive to like be a grown up. And it it seems very much similar to Lauren, who like wants change. Like his idea of change seems to be if I'm going to provide someday, then I need to like embrace this and embrace this world. So I guess for me, I'm wondering whether or not Keith would have existed the same way, even if he was like born today or maybe not born today. Cause we're kind of heading towards Lauren's world, but like <laughs> born 20 years ago, maybe if he was born in a more stable society, that maybe de-emphasized hyper-masculinity and and violence, would he have ended up the way he ended up? Yeah, I think that's kind of tricky to know because, like, some of the stuff he does really does seem, like, sociopathic. And if that is the case, right, like, he was going to be that way no matter what society he was brought up in. But I, I do don't know think- if I believe that. I don't know that... The- Psychologists, come at me. Tell me why sociopaths exist and how they can't be reformed. Because I don't actually believe it. So, like, oh, email no, they us can't. at Rebel Girl. The, there's, there's <laughs> lots of therapies out there that like are that like help people who are who experience that, right? Like, because it's a real disorder and stuff. And there's lots of therapies to help you if you are experiencing that. But like, it doesn't. The therapies don't fix it, right? Like, that in the sense of like they they don't experience emotion in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, regardless of that, though, I do think that, like, there's a, I don't know, it's a hard balance, right? Like, because a lot of the stuff Keith does when he's younger is just, like, really bullying, which is still terrible, right? But, like, is not behavior that, like, people can't be, you know, taught is wrong. Yeah. I think that a lot of what the tension is with Keith is, like, his relationship with his parents is really weird because Corey lets him get away with everything because Keith is Corey's favorite and it's obvious, right? Like, and we're talking about the whole blood thing earlier, right? Like all of the other children in Lauren's family, because she has three other brothers as well, that like just, they're really side characters in this novel. They don't come up very much. Um, Marcus does a little, he has a little bit of a personality. Yeah. But like for the most part, it's really like about a lot of tension between Keith and Lauren um, but like even among those children who are all like Corey's biological children, right? Like Keith is the favorite. And then Lauren's father, who like I think really sees Keith a lot more for what he actually is and like tries to intervene but can't intervene. So like I think that setup is a bad one for a child to be raised in, probably. And like it's really just like conflicting method messages. What about what is and isn't okay and all of that stuff. And I think that you're right that like that being raised in that way in conjunction with a world where like he has to, he feels he has to take on the responsibility of providing for his family very young first, because he feels like his stepdad isn't doing a good job. And second, because his stepdad goes missing and like this really intense push of hyper-masculinity. I feel like those two things put together are probably like absolutely what made Keith Keith. Um, and if he was raised in a, in a circumstance where like that wasn't true, then yeah, he probably would be different. Yeah, I agree. There are a few things that I want to touch upon based off of what you were talking about. So his father, that is his biological father, Lauren's father. Right, right, right. Sorry. No, it's okay. That's okay. Corey says that the father views Lauren as the favorite. And we are getting this from Lauren's perspective. So we don't actually know if Corey in her heart feels that Keith is the favorite, but like he, she loves him and he is the firstborn son and Lauren does not like him. And neither does Marcus because he is a bully, but he does care about, he does care about his like siblings a little. He's never really kind to Marcus, but when he goes out into the real world and starts doing really questionable things and making money, he brings all the money back to his mother and he says don't let my father have it because the father had beaten him yeah and then he like brings toys for the younger brothers and eventually he even like 
eventually he and Lauren even kind of share some sort of connection and like he starts seeing Lauren differently. And I don't know. I don't know. I don't think that he's ever a good person. And I think the things that he does is super duper awful. But I also like wish we had gotten this novel from like an objective perspective to see more what made Keith Keith. And yeah, it's just sad. Like it is, it really hurt me when he ended up dead. I was like, oh my God. And it happened like right after he wanted to give Lauren her birthday present. There are, yeah, there are moments here where you could see a a path of redemption for Keith, right? Like as he grows up and starts taking on more adult responsibilities, but he's just so imbued in the violence of this world that like it comes out of him as well. But and and he chooses it too. Like it is a choice. None of the other children choose to be violent. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. You're totally right though. So it's just like one of those weird, um. It's just sad. Yeah. In my bones. It is sad. I didn't have quite such a strong emotional reaction to that just because I thought that like I really didn't enjoy Keith as a character. And like I understand why he was there and what his role in the book was and I think it would have been a worse book without him. But I just I don't know. For me those like small moments of redemption weren't enough to like really make me care about him as a character. Which like again is just my personal reading experience. But, like, we definitely could have taken, his story could have taken a much different turn if, I think, nurturing him had gone a little bit differently and if he had had different choices uh, and made different choices. Because some of the choices he makes, I, I think you could probably argue he feels like he has to because there are very limited options to make money when you're, like, a 14-year-old. <laughs> it's like that is why he falls into a group of people who do reprehensible violent acts to others to make their money. Yeah, I don't know. Keith is Keith is Keith is a sad and complicated character, I think. I just yeah. don't care very much about him. He does just enough bad things where I'm just like, mm, I don't I don't care. Well, to be fair, our main character doesn't really care that much either. Like she is kind of sad cuz it's her brother, but like that also struck me cuz I was like, if that were my brother, I would be so torn up even if he was an asshole. But that's because I don't believe in bad people and also I have like a weird all of the men in my life are sad boys, you know? I like, I have this weird sort of inner problem where I'm like, I must fix all of the broken men. <laughs> Except for my current partner, just so the world knows. <laughs> yeah, he's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Oh boy, yeah. Okay, uh, that's it. That's all I have. Uh, there was some cool stuff that was in the back of the book, but I kind of want to wait until we read the next book to talk about it because I think it's going to come up more. Yeah, for sure. Uh, was this book feminist? Uh, I would say yes. I mean, we do have a main character who is femme-identifying, who does actually go beyond the bounds of her society. The society itself is not feminist. But, like, we have mostly femme characters for the most part. I think in part because they feel a little bit less threatening, maybe, than some of the masculine characters. And, like, they are pretty badass i would say like they're they're real characters it, it reminds it's feminist in the way that the first book of um lilith brood dawn it, it kind of reminds yeah. me of dawn it's not dealing with gender as directly but like the characters are all well-rounded and like it's primarily a story uh, it's a story about a, a fe- um, an identifying person and also like there are other strong femme identifying characters <laughs> yeah what do you think maggie Yeah, I think it's definitely a feminist book. I just don't think that, like, the theme... uh, Again, unlike Lilith's Brood, right? Because, like, Lilith's Brood was really a commentary on gender and and in that way. I think that this was a feminist book whose point wasn't to be feminist, if that makes sense. Like, that wasn't the point of the book in the same way. This one was much more about climate change and and that sort of, like, impact societally. Um, But yeah, for me, it was definitely just, like, a feminist book feminist book which is why we talked about it what you're reading oh what am i reading uh parable of the talents (laughs) you thought it was gonna be something new silly goose what are you reading maggie i am reading mexican gothic by sylvia moreno garcia who also wrote the book the gods of jade and shadow which i've talked about pretty extensively on this podcast 
Very exciting. Very exciting. I want to read that someday. I hope we read it for the podcast because I don't know how much reading is in my future, unfortunately. Yay! <laughs> Do we oh homework? Yeah. My homework from this book, I actually kind of already did it <laughs> as I was reading. I Well, I started like writing a lot of poetry because Lauren's idea of like writing for truth really struck me. And I, as we had talked about a little bit before, I mean, I am a writer um, and I hadn't been writing a lot. So I've started writing at least every day and it's been good. So like I've been, you know, figuring out how I feel about the world and my philosophies a little bit more through that. That was my homework. So I achieved it. Go me. Very nice. Very <laughs> nice. Uh, I think my homework is probably a little bit more climate based and that I would like to continue doing some work to make myself more self-sufficient, you know, less dependent on the cogs in the machine. Cause I'm in a privileged place where I can do that. And then if enough people in privileged places do that, then the cogs of the machine will eventually fall apart. And then maybe we can achieve more equity for everyone. Yes. Mail me your garden food. I keep trying. I keep waiting for my grow lights, but they never came. I tried. I tried to be self-sufficient. Um, <laughs> failed miserably. I have half of the equipment. She's working on it. She's got it. Don't worry. Okay. Uh, is that all? For, oh, next episode, we are talking about um, <clears throat> Lenny Zuma's Red Clocks. Yes. The first half of it. The, the first, first half, half of, the of it. Then we'll go back to talents. We need to give you guys some breaks. We need to shake it up. Keep you on your toes. (laughs) All right. Uh, Is that all? That's all. All right. Bye. -bye. Goodbye. And I will. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC Pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter. And you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.